Dog Find Alert, the canine search and rescue podcast, where we discuss everything related to the world of canine search and rescue work. I'm your host, Zephyr Allen, and thank you for joining us again today. So today is part two of our discussion with Sonia Nordstrom about selecting and starting the HRD dog. So Sonia, thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. All right, great. So for those of you who are maybe listening to this podcast for the first time, I would highly recommend that you go back, flip the tape back over. For those of you of a certain age, I guess I should say, some people may not understand the term, but flip the tape back over and you want to go back and listen to part one of this discussion with Sonia, because everything we discussed in part one is leading up to what we're going to discuss here in part two which is some of the more practical things once you actually get the dog. Part one was a little bit more of Sonia's background, how to select a dog, where to select a dog from, et cetera. Part two, we're gonna get into more, some of the practicals of once you have the dog, some of the things that you wanna get into. So Sonia, where I'd like to pick back up on, so I think last uh, conversation, we, we got a little bit off track, primarily because of me, I want to talk about marker training. But what I wanna get into now is, Again, we have to make a few assumptions. So I have this dog. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do HRD work with it. I want a wilderness search dog. So a dog that can go out and cover 80 acres for a person who's been missing for a week or, or six years, whatever the case may be, not necessarily a cold case. But that's the type of dog that we're looking for. So let's say I have this eight-week-old puppy. What I'd like to ask you about is what you do with your dogs for environmental exposure and how are you getting, getting them acclimated to the, to the various environments they're going to encounter as a wilderness our dog? Okay. Um, I, I think a lot of that goes to selection, number one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a lot of um, most socialization, and I'm, I'm always hesitant to use the word because to me, socialization is not about being a social butterfly. It's about existing in the world and having no fear of it. It's about tackling any obstacle. It's about challenging anything in your path and not worrying about it. It's it's moving with confidence through the world. So to me, it's about environmental desensitization. And that's done, you know, again, if you pick the right puppy, it's a bold puppy. It's a happy puppy. It's a water off a duck puppy. So when you're talking babies, that you should actually see a lot of that sort of confident behavior in the pup. And unless it has a bad experience, that behavior should really carry on into the dogs through the puppyhood and the adolescence, unless you do something dramatic to it during a fear period. By the same token, I would not overface. And by overface, I mean, don't dump it into a hot bucket of water and think that it should just figure it out, right? So anytime we're doing exposure, it's basically watching, you know, acting confident yourself because you, uh, one of the analogies I give is that you are your dog's movie music. So are you watching Jaws and hearing that very tense, stressful music that you know something bad's going to happen? Or are you watching Love Story where everything's happy and flowers and fields, right? So you have to set that tone with your dog. You move confidently. You don't walk on eggshells. And you bring your treats and you do various things and you let, you know, but you don't like throw them on stuff. And if they're fearful, it's a really interesting balance of not feeding that fear and not nurturing that fear. 
but just taking a breath, giving the dog a chance to make the decision. So I've had some clients that have struggled with dogs that have just to the point where they have to put them in the car to get them out the front door because the dogs are too afraid. And I basically said, don't coax, don't look, don't touch. Just let's go play in the driveway. And then let the dog self-discover, let the dog make the decision that's what what's going on is a better thing, reward the braveness, and then let them go back. So it's kind of this ebb and flow kind of thing that you do if a dog is showing hesitancy. What you don't want to have happen is putting them into a difficult situation where they perhaps get hurt or injured. And now they're going to have this negative idea that this is dangerous and it hurts me, right? So it's safe exposure. It's um, using thresholds, it's watching them, it's letting them put their toe in the water and maybe take it out and think about it. And then maybe we'll go in the water a little deeper and take them out and think about it. It's not this constant pressure to, oh, let's go, let's go, let's go. You're fine, you're fine. That's all pressure. And I think people don't understand that very often encouragement becomes pressure. And we don't really want that. So I'm going to ask you to describe what pressure means, because this is an important, an important term that I think a lot of people in our community don't, doesn't necessarily know a lot about, but there's multiple ways to put pressure on a dog. Could you walk through that just for a bit? Oh gosh, that's hard. I mean, there's physical pressure, obviously Mm -hmm. leash pressure and touching pressure and all sorts of things like that, but I'm talking more sort of emotional pressure. People think, oh, come on, puppy, come on, puppy, come on, puppy. And the puppy, it's almost a big distraction. So instead, I'd rather, like, literally, I I did this with a dog who wouldn't go out a dog door. I taped up the dog door. I put a treat on the outside and I walked away. And the people looked at me like I was nuts. They're like, we're paying you. And I'm like, don't worry about it. And then sure enough, the dog stuck its head out. And we just went a little. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, zooming in and out of the door. So everything, my entire approach to all training is component-based, breaking it down, little pieces, right? We don't play the whole concerto all at once. We don't play the whole game all at once. We break it down into skills. We break it down into little pieces. So if you're talking about a dog being bold enough to walk a plank, maybe we just let it take treats off the plank. Maybe we let it just stand on the plank. Maybe we let it just get up and down to get to the plank, right? But it's not about, you got to walk the plank. You got to walk the plank. Come on, come on, come on, come on. You know, it's too much. And... A bold dog, you don't have to worry about these things, but sometimes they have to, it's kind of like, give me a second to think about it. If, if, if you can relate it to a human, if you're afraid of heights, somebody dragging you to the edge of a high building is not going to make you feel good about it. Somebody letting you decide that maybe it's cool out there because everybody else out there is having champagne and looking at a pretty view and they all look really happy. Right. Um, but, and the most bit of pressure is what do when a dog's a little hesitant and then it finally, then they like attack them with praise. Well, you may as well have just scared them back into the cocoon because I was just digesting this. So the idea of letting dogs explore and digest peacefully and then behavior. So humans put a lot of pressure in their desire and impatience for the dog to succeed. And that does not bode well for the dog. So, so there's a fine line of hurt and pressure. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And that was exactly what I was hoping that you would say. So for our listeners, we took a, a quick break to fix some of the audio issues that we were having. I think they're fixed now, so we'll continue with our discussion. So Sonia, to the point that you were making around environmental exposure, do you think there's something to be said about having an older or senior dog help with that exposure process with puppies? I know with, with I've seen with my dog, I, my, with my older German Shepherd, uh, he's pretty much fearless and my younger dog will look to him if something does frighten her and if he's reacting to it she reacts the exact same way which is usually usually he didn't react at all is that something that you've seen be successful with dogs that you've worked with yeah yes except it may not it may not translate to the dog being able to do it on their own mm-hmm so if it helps them great i mean basically when it comes to training you do anything to get the result you want, right? So so training really is about your level of creativity. And if you've got a young dog, especially a puppy, again, though, if that puppy is chasing after a super, that that older dog isn't concerned about whether or not the puppy is being overfaced. So you may potentially run a little risk where the puppy's scrambling to keep up, distracted away from the threat of the area, scrambling to keep up and may actually get hurt in the process so again being aware making sure it doesn't become a bad thing right because um because you as a human can maybe if you're talking rubble or something like that you can pick the path that will be a successful path for the puppy your older dog isn't going to pick that path your older dog is just going to go so mm-hmm. there can i mean definitely it can be a plus it makes the puppy have fun and then they don't stress over it but at the same time, that older dog may be training the puppy, but it's not necessarily training the puppy with a thoughtful process in its head. Yeah, it could definitely be to the good or the bad. I remember when I first got my puppy, it was the 4th of July, and I live out in the, the boondock, so we can set off fireworks here. And the fireworks started, and my puppy was just a bit alerted. And of course, I didn't react because I was watching her. And she looked at my older dog, and he didn't even raise an eyebrow. And she just lay back down and went to sleep. So, yeah, and that's it, wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. And again, the contrary could happen. If you've got yeah. a dog that's yeah. horribly noise sensitive, keep your puppy away from it because yeah. your puppy's going to think, oh, that dog knows everything and he thinks it's a bad thing. So, again, everything's a little bit of a double edged sword. Absolutely. If the older dog can be the stable, steady Eddie, that just lets everything water off a duck, roll off them. Stand, hopefully the puppy will say, oh, well, there's nothing to worry about, right? Because animals naturally look. That's why as a human, we also have to be that person, that animal, that mm-hmm. leader that isn't phased by things, that just walks through the world like we own it. As opposed to, oh, we're going to come up on a river. Oh, we're going to cross a river. Like people get all excited. And it's like, that's not helping. Could <laughs> you just be be normal, right? I, I talked about that. I said, I kind of wanted to do a t-shirt that said, you know, be normal because people don't act normal when they're around dogs, <laughs> right? They get Yeah, out, I would buy that they, shirt. They, yeah. they walk on eggshells <laughs> or they walk weirdly or they're afraid to move or they can't bump or they get all stiff. I'm like, what? Can you just be normal? It's just not that hard, right? Because if you're not, if you're walking on eggshells, you're, I mean, you could play this as a game with people. Um, or play it as a game with your dog, like slink around the house, like something scary is going to happen and you'll see your dog be heightened. Right. So mm-hmm. if we do that, when we're trying to expose them to things, we're not helping them. So, you know, we're all animals and we all, um, follow the leader to some extent. 
So you've got to be a good leader. And that doesn't mean cheery, cheery, cheery and pressure, pressure, pressure. It means like, hey, life is cool. Let's just do it. Yeah, that's great. So you all heard it here first. I'm going to trademark that shirt, be normal. And then I'll give Sonia some of the the money that I make from, <laughs> from that shirt. Because it is, yeah, I it, forget, it is there something were three that's definitely phrases. needed. <laughs> there were three phrases. I think it was be, be, be bipolar, which didn't seem politically correct, because it was kind of like the no, yay, I love mm-hmm. you, right? So yeah. it was that kind of erratic change in mood of the handler if the dog's doing what you don't like and then they do the right thing and you're like oh i love you it was be normal be bipolar and be something else i forget i'll remember well you can just send it to me then when you see it on my website that i don't have <laughs> for, yes, for 30 exactly. bucks and you know that it worked out well <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so let let's move on i, I want to jump to odor imprinting um and talk about how that process starts we hit on that just a little bit during the first episode, but I, I'm going to ask you to kind of dig into that in detail. So the first question I'm going to ask around odor imprinting is what do you look for in a dog before you start imprinting odor? Are you looking for an age? Are you looking for a behavior? Are you looking for a certain maturity level? Uh, what is your threshold or your benchmark to say, all right, this dog is ready to be put on odor? Well, let's bring it back. There's a difference between exposure and imprint. So let's talk terminology. Okay. I think that there can be a great advantage to exposing like two and three week old puppies in the litter box to various odors. Because you're, from what I understand, and I'm not some neuroscientist, but I'm under the impression that you do actually build familiarity pathways, right? And that, you know, that if you can expose them in the litter box to some, to just in the same way, you know, we think visual stimulus or tactile stimulus. And in the litter box, you've got puppies climbing over things and, and biting on things and crashing through things. And, and I think as humans, we think more about mobility and visual, but the dog could easily be learning odors as well. So putting odors, exposing the dogs to various odors in the litter box, it doesn't make it a target odor, but it does make potentially a positive chain. Um, There's a woman locally who is a severe diabetic and she's constantly fluctuating and constantly treating herself. And she raises diabetic alert dogs. And what what sort of happens is she'll be playing with the puppies She'll feel herself dropping and she'll put the puppies on the mother's milk. And basically she created a circumstance in which the puppies started to suckle when, when her numbers were going down because they started to recognize that odor that she was putting off or whatever it is that you do put off when you're going to enter into a diabetic condition. Um, She was putting something off that became a predictor of eating. So mm-hmm. the do- so you noted that the puppy started suckling, like reaching for her earlobes and things to suckle. And so very early, you can make associations. Um, so you certainly could pick different odors, whether it's bomb odor or narcotics odor or whatever, expose the dog to those odors, those baby puppies, and then, you know, let them sniff at it and explore it and then put them on their mothers, right? So you're creating kind of this interesting precursor, right? Um So there's nothing wrong with that. That's what I would consider exposure. You would also, when it comes to HR in particular, human remains, 
I do believe there are dogs that shy from it, that don't like it. It concerns them. It's not normal. Um, those may not be great dogs to try to use as HR dogs. Um, I don't know that dogs like the odor of bombs or like the odor of drugs, right? We can train all sorts of dogs for all sorts of odors. They don't have to like the odor. But with HR, it does seem that you will get actually even avoidance to the odor. So I wouldn't necessarily be selecting a puppy that shows avoidance, right? Now, I've heard of some handlers, trailing dog handlers, where their dog is trailing, and then they give a proximity alert and kind of an aversion when they've come across someone who has expired. That's a good body posture to recognize. <laughs> and it has helped those handlers to know that and to say, oh, wait a second, I think somebody's dead and that they're really nearby. So that's a little off track, but it can play either way. But when it comes to an HR dog, you can expose early on before they've left the litter. And you will sometimes see dogs that gravitate more strongly to it than others. Mm -hmm. So that's exposure. Okay. Now we get into actual training. Puppies absolutely live for food because they're growing and they're surviving. And you can do sort of the nose to source exercises, whether it's the tubes or whether it's the various things, and you can build that enthusiasm and drive. But as the dog starts to get older, to me, I feel like you can get that in their brain but then just leave it alone, put it in their brain and leave it. To me, I would rather leave it alone and not be harping on getting an indication because they're going to go through all of this, you know, puppy stuff where maybe I want to do this. Maybe I want to do that. Maybe I haven't been as, I mean, most SAR dogs and maybe I'm not, I'm speaking about the volunteer SAR dogs, right? These are our pets as well. They're working animals and we treat them like working animals but they're members of our family. They're part of our household. They're not machines. And we don't keep them in a crate all day and then bring them out for an hour. They're not scientific experiments. So I think we have to be kind of realistic about the level of, of work that we put on them. On the one hand, you basically cultivate them where this is the only thing you live for. And every time you're going to eat, you're going to do this. And you can do that but I feel like it takes a level of maturity for the dog to have that precision that you want. And when you're pushing them through, when they really don't have the maturity to give you that level of intensity and precision, you're kind of only practicing sloppy habits. And there's so much else that can be done. So that's kind of a really roundabout way of saying, I don't have a timeline. I watch the dog. And what I do is I develop their love for odor, whether it's hunt, whether I develop their hunt, whether I develop their love for a game, whether I develop their love for a toy, but I want to develop that I've got to go do this kind of thing. And I can do that with odor on primary reward. But again, if you want intensity in a behavior, you need maturity usually to go along with that intensity. And again, that will be somewhat breed dependent, right? Some breeds really mature very quickly. So it, to me, it's sort of this give and take, ebb and flow, push a little, retreat a little, not these huge swings. And when people describe that training has to be these big upward, downward peaks, I don't love that and I don't agree with that. If you're watching your dog and just guiding them in an upward trajectory, 
your dips should be very, very small before you adjust or take a break. You don't push them to the point where they're going to take a deep dive. So that idea that training has to be this huge up and down graph, I don't buy it. Um, right. If you're moving incrementally, I think you can have the, you, you shouldn't have the gigantic a, valley. It should be a nice, small exactly. Steps. It yeah. should be a, a nice, steady, steady upward trajectory with little bobbles here and there. But again, you shouldn't be pouring everything on at once. If you change an element, you change one element, not five. And, and I use this analogy. If I'm going to go and get vaccinations, I don't get four vaccinations at once. Because if I'm going to have a reaction, I really want to know which one caused the reaction, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to train a dog, I'm not going to pile five new things on at once. Because then if things fall apart, I don't really know which part of it fell apart. But if instead I pile on one thing, one little incremental build, one little bump, and then I work on that bump a little bit, and then I push that bump out a little, then maybe I bring that bump back and I add a different bump, right? So that I'm constantly just pushing a little, bringing it back, adding something, then putting those together. It's this very nice little incremental build that's very attainable goals. And it's not just, okay, like I, I see this in wilderness all the time. Well, he can do a runaway, so we're going to do a 40-acre problem. I'm like, how did you go from a runaway to now a double-blind 40-acre? That is not an incremental bump, right? That's that's a huge bump and you're setting yourself up for failure. Could it go well? It might. And then you'll be all psyched, but you won't know that it went well for the right reasons. It might just be luck. Yeah. And then and you're going to have a gigantic, you're gonna have a gigantic valley ahead of you that you don't see coming to. I think potentially, yeah. right? Yeah. So we see those kinds of things. And I think, I think the biggest flaw in humans in training is lack of an analytical approach and lack of patience. We so want our dogs to succeed. We all sit here and hold our breath like, oh my God, he can do it, right? And we want to jump inside. It's like Little League. We want to jump inside them and give them that home run. And it is so hard to just hang back and say, you got it, buddy. It's all on you. But if you want to be able to hang back, you've got to not overface the dog. And if you overface the dog, you're causing stress. So that's another thing that I really kind of focus on. I want intensity. I want focus. I work toward those things. I want precision, but I don't want to see frenetic stress. And there's some stress is positive, right? So anytime you challenge yourself, there's a little bit. But if that dog is constantly frothing at the mouth and losing it, that's not healthy. And that's not a dog that's going to sustain for hours in the field, right? Mm -hmm. So again, I go back to this whole balance concept of um, component-based training, separating things out, having a specific goal, and, and it's a goal that has to be fluid, right? So I can't have this, okay, well, I'm going to do this, and if this goes wrong, I'm going to do this, and if this goes wrong, I'm going to do this. Well, you kind of have to go with the flow, right? And, and so it's purposeful, but it's not rigid, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I guess I'm really difficult to follow because I just kind of flow with it. Right. I, I know, I sort of, I know when to help. I know when to stay back. I know when to push the dog by not helping. 
but I know how to guide with my body and not my mouth, right? So these are things that I do to maintain a fluidity where the dog really just kind of ends up succeeding, but they don't necessarily attribute it to me. That's kind of always my goal. Mm -hmm. Is that I can sort of guide the dog to success without them realizing that I did it. And then they can put it in their head. They can digest it. They can think about it. They can add it to their bag of tricks. And now we're going to come out. We're going to solidify that. And then when we're ready, we're going to bump it up. And so that's the training progression for me is tiny incremental build, thoughtful direction, not random. If you're going to add a huge challenge, bring back the other aspects, right? So if you're going to go for duration, maybe make it a, an easy nose thing, not a deep puzzle, right? Um, or know that you've got that out because you're going to be able to, if, if they start to struggle, you can walk them right across the odor, not to the odor, across the odor, right? So you know you've got a good steady wind, you know your target zone, and if you see them start to kind of lose focus or get a little frustrated or get a little codependent, you just stride on forward and you let that odor hit them in the face and bring them in. And then they don't really realize you helped them, but you bring them to the brink of, I'm not being able to do this. And then, oh my God, I can do this, right? So those are the kinds of, of ways that I sort of passively guide the dog through the process. Okay, great. Yeah, that's helpful. So, um... Actually, so before I jump to this question, so let me let me ask it this way. Uh, if, if you think back about your last dog or two, and you, if you don't remember exactly, that's not a problem. About what age do you think that they were whenever you started them actually imprinting on odor? So not, not a, a, a TFR, not searching, just actually imprinting. And then what did you see in your dogs that said, all right, they're at a good point in their maturity to start that imprinting process? Um, well, uh, seven months, seven months, seven months, but it well, actually that's not true because the shepherd was already working. So seven months, seven months, one year because I wasn't doing HR, and then 14 months when I got the dog, because he was ready, right? Okay. So he was immediately ready. Um, but what I did, and what it's funny, because I didn't necessarily purposely do it. I had a plan, like I had a way that I was going to do it. And I noticed for the seven-month-olds that, you know, I was going to do the boxes, right? Where mm -hmm. you feed the ball up through the box, and I was going to do all this stuff, and then the nose-to-source stuff. And, and at seven months, it was too intense there was too much pressure and despite having very drivey dogs i mean that would rip the hand rip the leash through your hand and rope burn you it still was too much closeness and it wasn't it was too much in it was too much on top of them kind of pressure and i could see it wasn't good for them and with both of them both of those seven month olds i basically went to odor runaway and odor throws to build drive for the odor. All right, so I'm, so, I'm gonna pause pause you right there because that's gonna lead me right into my next question because I think this is important because there's multiple methodologies of how to imprint on odor. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last time, but I, that's exactly what I wanna dive into. So tell us about that odor throw process and how you went about imprinting your dogs on odor. Um, 
I have sort of revert, and I know it's old school and people say, why would people do that when we know so much more through science, blah, blah, blah. All I know is I had to sort of go back to it as the steadfast. I wanted intense hunt, enthusiasm, and focus to odor. I accomplished that sort of looking in hindsight. I thought I was going to do it with boxes. I thought I was going to do it with the tubes. I thought I was going to do it with the, you know, all these different things. And ultimately what I did is I took a tennis ball that I saturated with the HR odor and I used to chuck it and I went to a field of tall grass and I built this beautiful, independent, never look back hunt that would go on and on and on until the dog was about to snatch it up. I'd put the mark on it just before they were going to pick it up. And then within, after two days of that, literally two days of that, then I sort of put a, you know, the primary reward right next to a source. I did a fake throw in one direction and dog's hot for it, goes out for it, goes right to it, puts his nose, and then he gets, he gets the automatic pickup. And then I just transferred it to the mark. And then I transferred it to the, he, he's drawn to the odor now because he knows it's a positive. He's drawn into it, gets to it, yes, and then reward away from source. And it just evolved over the course of like no time at all. So for me, building that, you know, it, it, it targets the independent hunt. It's a blast. It's engaging with the handler. It's getting the dog to learn that I'm not here to help. The noise is yours. And you can worry about the ball. It's not a problem. I, I literally had had him out looking once and he found a different tennis ball, picked it up, spit it out and went and found the target one. And then I will put decoy balls out and I can have his reward toys right in front of him. Odor becomes primary. But to get that, I, I don't want to cultivate the sort of drift around, bump into something and get a reward for it. I want it in drive. I want it to be motivational. Um, other people use towels, right? They do towel throws. Some Back in the day, it was always about the PVC pipe throw and have the dog retrieve it. So however you want to do it, I am, I'm real, I love it as a system because I want the dog to be excited about the odor so that they're drawn to it like a magnet. And it's in the context of play and reward. In and distance. so... And, well, and independence, right? Yes. And that way I don't have to be involved in it. And then mm -hmm. then I can start to control my odor. I can put it behind a fence and then I can shape and then I bring it back into the boxes. But if I've built that enthusiasm, if I've made odor positive, if I've made this incredibly positive response to odor, and then at the same time, I'm building in the mark and the translation over to the reward, right? Um, so I've done it many different ways with different dogs. I, I had a a German shepherd just come in on nose work and I was sort of doing the very kind of static, the tubes, right? And the dog was like, Ugh, what am I doing? It was a five-year-old shepherd. It's like, why am I doing this? And I'm like, forget that. We've got, we have to have more motion. And we turned it into this prey lock game and the drawers and the run and, and the dog just turned on and she was, by the end of the day, she was like on it. So I guess for me, giving the dog a chance to develop the hunt, develop the, the environmentals, develop all of these great things. And then odor becomes this incredible cherry on top. And then you've got the maturity and then you've got that drive. And then the dog can withstand a little bit of back pressure 
when you try to put an indication in, right? So again, I've done it many different ways because I've done it with many different dogs at different stages, at different maturity levels of different breeds. Um, I, I'm, I can't give a cookbook, right? But I do believe that pushing the indication too early, the TFR too early, almost is confusing. The dog's like, well, I thought we were having fun with odor and now I'm doing obedience. So I've seen people rush the indication and it, mm -hmm. it amounts to a dog that just kind of stinks at odor instead of perks up. I wanna see a dog blow up at odor, right? I wanna see him perk up and excite. And I wanna see all this nice, beautiful body language change. That's what I'm looking for when a dog's in odor, not a, it's gonna happen, I'm gonna fillet that, right? So. So depending upon how people are introducing it, and yes, you can take a puppy, you can cultivate a nice down, it's all great. But again, with a baby, you can get the behavior and it's cool, but it's not gonna sustain through this adolescence and stuff, I don't think. Uh, so I, I don't know, sorry, I'm getting a- No, that, that, that was a great answer. And I'm going to, uh, just for the listeners, what Sonia just described, Mike Suttle has a really, really good video he uses a towel, but he de he describes this process in, in detail. So I will post that video both in the show notes and on the Hunt, Find, Alert Facebook page. So it'll give you a really good description of what it is that Sonia's describing. Again, uh, and Mike Soto is a, is a dog handler and breeder out in, I think he's in West Virginia. West Virginia. Uh, yeah, but he describes it very well. So I'm going to ask what, what some people are probably thinking to themselves, Sonia. I know the answer, but I'm going to ask you to answer it. So let's say I go through this process and I use, just say, a tennis ball, soak that tennis ball in odor. And my dog learns to fetch that tennis ball with the odor imprinted on it. Now I want to put my dog on actual odor. As you and I both know, for HR, it is frowned upon for a dog to touch Verboten. odor, certainly <laughs> mouth odor. How do yep. you then prevent that dog from picking up that odor once you actually put them on actual odor? Okay, so I'm going to go back and, and put this in the context of shaping. When shaping behaviors, this is why it's difficult to sort of coach somebody through doing this. When you're shaping a behavior, there's a progression that you need to follow. It can't go too fast. It can't go too slow. If I say, okay, spend three weeks doing X and then one week doing Y and then another week doing Z, what happens is at what point has the dog now habituated a certain behavior that now you have to counter condition before you can move on? So this is why I would like, I, I prefer, and also Mike Settle, going back to that, he actually makes a big distinction between the adolescent dog, like the one-year-old, the 14-month-old, the 10-month-old, the right? The one that has the maturity to do the towel throw stuff that he does mm -hmm. versus the eight-week-old, that they're doing tubes and walls and back pressure and all these other things, right? So there's both sides of this coin. And he he offers those distinctions. And that's it's kind of hard when we're talking the SAR dog because typically people are starting with the baby puppies. So I would kind of give them that initial stuff and then I'd let them kind of stew on it and work other things. And then, and then I'd want that crisp, hardcore stuff. It's in their brain. Anyway, going back to the, um, how do I now keep the dog from picking it up? Now, granted a retriever, that may be more challenging, but my, when it comes to shaping, if you're working on your retrieve and, and whatever for 10 months, 
that dog is going to be very conditioned to retrieve. What I'm describing is I'm not doing it to the point where he's so over the top that he can't, I, I then just contain the odor where he can't retrieve it. And then I shape an indication. So when you're shaping, you can't stay at one position or one spot so long that now to move forward, you have to counter condition what you've taught, right? So shaping requires a fluidity and a progression where the dog is adding and adding and adding, but not add, stabilize forever. Now I don't want to give that up before I can add more, right? Does that make sense? Yes. So that's where sort of the the skill of shaping comes in. And the kind of indication building that I'm talking about is shaping. And it can happen in just a few sessions. So what we actually did with a lot of our wilderness dogs who have a refined indication, they've got a solid refine. So they have this very conditioned behavior of refine, right? And basically we take a, a, a can with odor, very strong odor, do a runaway with it, put it down. It's a can that they can't retrieve. And then we walk them through their refine. So they have a behavior already established. We introduce the odor as a fun new thing to do a runaway for. And we put it in something that's not fun to retrieve. That's not something they're even going to try to retrieve that doesn't give them any feedback. So whether it's a box or a tube or something that just isn't fun to engage with, and then they revert to their refund. So that's, so I, again, I sort of passively set things up where retrieving isn't really an option in this case, but you have other things that I've taught you that you can offer and then you'll get what you want. So it's a shaping process where you control your target and the dog can't, so that you're not in a position of having to correct them off or mm -hmm. no and don't pick up. So I'll put it behind a fence. I'll put it in an ammo can. Uh, I'll put it, you know, where it's not, you don't put it under things that are going to be really self-rewarding and fun to dig at, right? So you eliminate the ability of the dog to self-reward. And you, so then you bring things back in. So maybe I'm doing my ball throws to 40 yards. Well, I'm not going to start my indication at 40 yards unless it's at a fence line and I can have it behind a fence that he can't get it. And then I can just capture that. And now again, I've also had my marker. So my dog has that expectation of reward with the marker. So now if he hears, yes, he comes flying. So now I can just get him lock him at the fence. Yes. And he comes back. Mm -hmm. Then he can get to the fence. Now I've built an expectation. Hey, you're going to lock at the fence. So I just do send away drills right to odor in an ammo can behind a fence. And so I send him, he gets to the odor. He hovers, yes, reward. And then I send him again. And then this time he gets there. He's like, well, you should be saying yes. And I say, down, reward, boom. <laughs> so then I yes him on the down. Then I then I down him and he's sitting here and then he looks back at it. Yes, reward. And then I capture a stare and then I build it. So it's just this incremental build. So I, I, I have not had an issue with the dog's retrieving odor. Okay. That yeah, that was because a perfect I'm not, answer. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not giving them the opportunity. But again, in order to shape, I'm going to control my environment such that they can't self-reward by doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Cuz I don't want to have to include correction. And even at that, 
if I have built enough enthusiasm and positivity toward the odor, they can withstand a little nope. They can handle a little, uh uh-uh. It's not going to shut them down because they're like, all right, that'll work, right? So now I've built, right? But if I've got a dog that's like, I don't know, it's kind of cool. I don't know. There's this odor. I don't know. And then I say, "Uh uh-uh. They're like, okay, never mind. I don't need to do that again, right? So (laughs) Yeah, I'll never go back to it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's so so the slightest little opposition, they may be like, yeah, I'm not doing that, right? So if I can build all of this excitement, and it doesn't mean over the top where they can't think and they're going crazy, but if I can sort of build this where odor becomes a bit of a magnet, then I have a lot more to work with. I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna be able to withhold reward until the dog makes a good choice because he really wants it, right? So I have to build that want to. Then I can start shaping things back. But without want to, if your dog doesn't want what you're offering, then they're not gonna offer anything to get it. Mm-hmm. So this is where reward techniques, building play, building desire, building, um, you know, drives for reward, whether it's food or toys, that's where these are the foundation skills that if you don't have those things, if you do not have a good reward system, don't even bother. So when you're looking for milestones, I'm looking for some level of independence, some level of ability to take correction when motivated. Uh, uh, and I don't mean correction, correction. I just mean like, uh-uh, interrupt, whatever, you got to do better. Like I need a dog that's willing to work with me and that can withstand a little bit of withholding because I do a lot of withholding in my detection work. It's like, hey, only game in town and you love this game. So what are you gonna give me for it? And they're like, I'll give you everything. And I'm like, yes, that's what I wanted. And then I only pick the thing I want. And so it can be really hard on them. You know, if, if we, we, God, I tortured one of our dogs the other day. It's a Bark Alert Abby dog. And she gets it, and I think it's the whole, and she's older. And she just gets in a cloud of odor and she just is barking her head off. I mean, we started wearing earplugs. It's it's so strong. And she barked, 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 barked. Well, I need her to not bark when she hits the room. I need her to actually source. And I said, we just have, we're not going to, if we, that's where I mean pressure. If you're going to say, go search, go search, go search. All that does is spin her up more and take her mind off of odor. So instead we just stand there and she's like, you guys are so dumb. And then she'll move closer. We say, yeah. And then we inch her closer. So we basically stand there like, I don't even know what you mean. And then eventually she's like, you guys are really, really dumb. It's really over here. And then she'll bring us to it, right? So Mm -hmm. we're not pushing her to it. We're basically withholding what she wants and saying, I just don't know. But not saying, find it, find it, find it, direct, direct, point, point. That just keeps her engaged with us. I want her to engage with Odor and get rewarded for it. So that's an example of, of pressure, right? And and when you've got a dog that has the desire to do the thing enough, they can handle that sort of withholding. I guess it's 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 negative. It's what is it? Negative punishment. I guess negative punishment mm-hmm. is withholding, right? Um, so I use that a lot. And when I've got a dog that's you know I'll get these dogs that are like flipping out in my face and they won't go work and they're jumping around. I just stand there and I'm like only game in town, buddy. And I maybe will, so I'll show them initially, I'll do a runaway to say, hey, this is your target. And then I'll ignore them. And they're like, okay, well, I'm going to do that. And then they get rewarded heavily for doing the right thing. So then the dog, if I try to jump into the dog's head to give him the answer, he doesn't ever learn to do it on his own. He waits for me to give him the answer. 
So instead I set him up where it's readily, the answer is readily available to him if he's willing to get out of his box and go look for it. And whenever he looks for it, it works out. And then he realizes, okay, being stupid didn't work. But again, all of that requires a strong desire and drive for odor and reward. Or that I was just going to say, well, screw it. You're not playing my game. I'm not going to play. Yeah, that, that being stupid doesn't work. Also works for working with humans. I've, I've come to learn <laughs> <laughs> in some cases. So that yeah. that's a great answer. So then... So again, we, we have to make some assumptions here. We're training a, a wilderness dog, 80 acres, uh, you know, any, anything from a couple of days old to maybe a few years old. So just to be clear, not a historical remains dog, because that's kind of really a, a different- More of a detail thing. Yeah, process in my mind. So the question I want to ask is your thresholds. Are you starting with high threshold odors? So tissue fat or are you starting with low threshold odors maybe bone either dry or Oof. wet uh how are you how are you going about that when you're initially imprinting on your odor i have gone back and forth on this through the decades my gut tells me higher threshold with a caveat right with everything there's a negative right that if you you do it and then you say but this can be the contrary problem right I like to start with the higher threshold, the reason being it overwhelms the associated odors that could be improperly imprinted into the dog's brain. So I would never want to start on some ultra dry bone because it's virtually impossible to store that ultra dry bone without it absorbing and making. So, so then you're in this proofing thing. All, you know what I mean? You've got to be mm -hmm. proofing from day one. So I want to make the odor a very, very obvious thing where it's prominent, right? And then I can present that prominent odor associated with many different things. So I'm not really focusing on proofing other than saying all things kind of being the same. This is the only thing that's really consistent and different. But I find that, and when I say prominent or large source, I'm not talking a torso, I'm talking, you know, a, a jar of fat or mm -hmm. something that, you know, you wouldn't want to walk downwind of it. Let's put it that way, right? When you're walking out to place it and you've got to do the wind, you're like, ugh, right? So something that we can easily smell that stands out in the environment. That said, for the wilderness dog, for sure, large source. You don't want them grasping at every little thing, right? You don't want them, you know, jumping up and down at, at some little wisp of something, they need to be looking for a large source. The biggest challenge of cadavers that we really cannot simulate in the field with any level of regularity, what we ask the dog to do. The spectrum of odor is like infinite. The volume is difficult. The travel of the odor, you know, down during the day or up during the day, down during the morning, over here, over there, trapping here, pooling here. I live in terrain and elevation where it spreads, I mean, you're getting odor at over a mile from, from someone who's um, really emitting a lot. And, you know, we can't do every permutation. So all we can really do is keep building drive for the spectrum as best we can, the full, you know, five stages of decomp, the full spectrum of odor, 
We give them those opportunities for large exposure at places like FACS and FERS and, and the, um, the San Luis Obispo one. So we go to the seminars to get that. If you have relationship with your coroner's office, sometimes you can get in and get full exposure. If you have relationships with your police departments, you can sometimes get on a scene and get exposure if it doesn't compromise anything. Because the odor should be familiar, but the dog will have to generalize because we can never put it together in the proper proportions and the proper full complement. Um, so it's about variability, but I don't want it to be so overshadowed by environmental odors or container odors that they almost don't know what the target odor is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes perfect sense. So then let's say you have the dog on the initial odor and everything is going well, you're, you're getting all the behaviors that you want out of the dog. Whenever you're ready to add additional odors or additional thresholds, either lower or higher to the dog, do you go back to the same process that you described earlier for imprinting or is it a different process that you use? I think at that point, the dog knows the game and it's just about presenting variability. Um, If they're struggling with something, I mean, you can always, if you're going to try something that seems vastly different, you could do a runaway with it. You can let the dog do it and then hold them back and then run away with it and place it and then reward them for it. So you do a real quickie so that he knows, hey, this is target. This is purposeful. This is something. Like, I don't really want to create a dog that guesses. So putting it out, let them stumble across it and then tell them they're right. I want to tell them, this is your target, man. This is it. This is going to be awesome, right? Mm -hmm. And then I run and put it for them. I build the drive for it. I tell them this is what you're looking for. They find it. They get rewarded. I don't like that ambiguity of, oh, maybe I can offer this novel odor. And maybe I can offer this novel odor, right? So I'd much rather... And that's where boxes and tubes can be good because I target them right to the odor. It's a familiar scene. I tell them, this is what I want. Um, I tell them from the get-go, this is in your library. You're going to be rewarded for this. Don't don't just kind of put it out and let's see what happens. Yeah, they'll probably go to it as a novel odor. But now you have to ask, what did he learn? Did he learn, I'll just go to novel odors? Mm. Or did he learn... Oh, yeah, she wants me to get that. So if I have a good little process in place and I can present that same sequence or pictures, I don't I don't go back to like an odor ball or or, you know, throw in stuff necessarily for that, because I think that there is enough overlap from stage to stage and from, you know, there's I think there's enough overlap that there's a familiarity. So the dog would often say, hey, this is close. And you're like, it, you've nailed it. Um And then, of course, you've got your whole proofing stages. So you're proofing off of containers, you're proofing off of toys, you're proofing off of other novel odors that are perhaps similar, as in dead animals and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, human funk that's out there and campsites and all sorts of interesting human residual things that you don't want them to indicate on. So that's a whole other chapter in your training that can be introduced kind of coincidentally here and there right and you know cat food and things that they're going to come across when they're searching a house or searching in a in a homeless encampment or something 
Okay. So I have to ask a question because you've mentioned it twice now uh, and I failed to ask the first time. So you've mentioned runaways. I, I want to make sure to ask this question because if I'm wondering, other people may be wondering, do you do runaways with HR just like you do with a live fine dog? So let's just say you have a, do- a jar of tissue. You take that jar and you wave it in the dog's face and then you run 10 yards and place it and then have the dog drive out to it. Is that what you're describing as runaways? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I post the dog, which basically you stand like a post and you essentially agitate the dog with the odor mm-hmm. and you say, Oh, this is so fun. Right. Not scare them <laughs> or maybe put it just out of reach where they're reaching for it. Right. So maybe not so hyper crazy where it turns into an aggression thing. Right. So here again, you have to read the dog and balance it. You're not trying to create aggression. You're not trying to create frustration. You're trying to create desire, right? So you have to read the dog and you have to be a good decoy in that regard, right? The decoy isn't trying to get the dog to fixate on them, perhaps, right? You really want the dog to fixate on the odor. So even if it means putting them a little downwind of the jar and having them sort of reach out for it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the person sweeps in and takes it and runs with it and puts it. And then that person fades out of the picture. The dog goes and does his thing. And, okay, and that cool. way he knows I'm supposed to target this, right? Cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I certainly, I think we all know about it for the life on perspective, but you're the first person I've ever, ever heard talk about it for HR, but it makes perfect sense. The principles are exactly the same. So yeah, that's great information. So let's transition. So one of the big things that I think, uh, at least from my limited experience in search and rescue that I think we struggle with, or I've seen people struggle with is having the dog dedicated to odor dogs that walk odor dogs that say oh yeah that's over there i found it all right let me go check out whatever else is happening or dogs that will find it do a big circle see what else is happening in the neighborhood and then maybe you can get the dog back to odor so very generic question high level question you know obviously dedication to odor is very very important uh, what principles or training do you instill in your dogs to ensure that dedication to odor I build drive for odor from the get-go before I ask for anything else. I want to see a body language change that is dramatic because of excitement and anticipation. And if, if your dog can't have enough intensity to be excited about something that you're going to reward him for, he's going to walk it. If you don't make it, the greatest thing ever, he's going to walk it. Um, on a different level, um, you know, we often, we, we need our dogs to find things. So when we go to a training, oh, I've got to have at least five, six, seven, eight aids. In some ways, what are we teaching them? They might get into the cone of one and then catch the cone of the other and then say, eh, I don't have to get that one. I'll go get this one. It's easier. So maybe one and done is a better practice versus we've got to find five of them in a row in an area. Maybe not building the expectation that, oh, there's another one if you don't get this one, right? So you can almost create that sort of, um, I'll go for the easier one. Uh, I'll go for this one. Or you, you can almost create that kind of shopping mentality by having many in the same area with possible overlap. So maybe in early stages, you build an expectation of one and done this is it, man, there's one, there's one, and it's going to be awesome, and you're going to get it. And that way, you're not 
creating that fight for the dog to say, well, I can just keep bopping along because I'm having fun. I'm not ready to find one yet. I want to go run around. And yeah, I know there's one over there, but I'll find another one and I'll get rewarded either way. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's that as far as establishing expectations for the dog. There's the reward methodology. There's also the idea that if I don't get what I want, I can praise and drag the dog off. And then I'll make them go in and do it correctly. So I don't reward per se. I praise, but I'm not giving him a big, you know, some people, the reward's always the same. You're always great. Even if I had to tell you the answer, not in my world, you didn't perform well enough. You're not getting rewarded. You're going to go do it right. Then I'm going to throw a party. So I think people also fall into this idea that, oh, I have to reward because then he won't do it. Well, maybe he shouldn't get rewarded for mediocre performance and that again underlyingly goes to the drive of a dog because if a dog doesn't have appropriate drive that might be enough to shut a low drive dog down which means it may not really be an appropriate dog <laughs> so it's mm -hmm. it's kind of this circular thing right if you've if you've got a dog with drive you have all these tools available and the dog is not going to be fragile they're just not going to be fragile. They're going to power through everything and it will make them stronger and stronger and stronger. But if you've got a dog that's borderline, he's like, yeah, that's kind of hard for me. I don't think I need to do that. That may not be fun. So I really don't see dogs with proper drive ever walk odor. I mean, I'm to the point, I'm like, if there's odor, I have full faith and confidence they're going to go to it unless something's confusing them. But they're not only going to go to it, they're going to tell me. The, the idea that a dog walks odor is in the past. That's just, it just isn't. The only reason why they would ever walk odor is if for some reason there was a, a confusion issue and they didn't, that's the only thing that I would accept. Yeah, that was perfect. Uh, yeah, you hit on many topics that are near to near and dear to my heart. I, you know, one of the things that is always in in my opinion is going to be challenging for a dog is if you put out like if we just use your example, if you imprint on on strong odor, and then you put out that strong odor, then you put a dry bone ten feet away from that that strong odor. And your dog goes to the dry bone and says, oh, that's great. But how about this odor over here that I, I was imprinted on and it's much stronger and everything that I know is based off of that. And you get mad at the dog and you say, well, why did you walk that bone? Well, you put that dog in conflict and certainly a senior dog can work through that. A dog that has some experience, but younger dogs, that is you're asking a lot from a dog to do that when you're putting well, a lot of odors in small scenario. places. Yeah, definitely. Go yeah, ahead. But let me give you a different scenario. When I have something out in the, when something's out in the field and it's been out there for a month, I have pools everywhere mm -hmm. and I'm teaching the dog to work through the pools to find the strongest source of odor. So I don't even want him to find the bone. I want him to go to the strongest source because the bone isn't the strongest source. So we have to say, what are we asking? We can't change gears and think that he magically knows. The dog has been trained to go to the strongest odor source. And that may mean going through a whole lot of random little stuff to get to the body. <laughs> yeah. 
So we can't have it both ways. There's a, there's a whole lot of things that I think people just kind of think it should happen. And yes, we can teach the dog to move, um, you know, when they're doing disarticulated remains, you can teach them, hey, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, they can overlap a little bit. So that's, that's a different exercise. Mm -hmm. But if we're thinking when you're talking the wilderness dog that you want to range and you don't want them to miss it, well, maybe, maybe getting them in the mindset that there's only one thing is good because then they're not going to think there's an easier one out there for them. Right. Um, and, and then you start building on that. Then you do a different exercise that says, oh, but now we can have multiples in close and then we can do a restart and go find another one. So you, you build off these things, but I think people are so worried about getting in reps and getting things in that they're not really thinking, what did I actually teach the dog? When I see, and, and that's another thing I'll do is if I have multiples in an area and I see him working something, I don't care if he catches something else. I will call him back and say, no, you've got to finish this one. So that's a training thing, right? I don't just let him move on and then say, we'll come back here. I say, no, 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 you flesh this one out. And when we're done here, then we'll move on and get that other one. Now in the back of my mind, I know there's more over there. So even if I'm working blind or double blind, if I see him light up, I will hold him in that. And again, that goes to the strength of the dog. I can hold him in the area. It doesn't shut him down. Right. Right. So I can tell him, nope, you don't get to go to that. You're going to come back here and finish. So a lot of the discipline, and I'm not telling him where it is because I don't know where it is, but I see his change of behavior. I know he's an odor. I am going to eliminate that area. I will work him until I feel certain that, okay, this must just be a pool and he can't get to source here, we're going to advance. But I'm not going to let him off the hook. Mm -hmm. All right. That was great. So for the folks listening, rewind that <laughs> that line of question and listen to it multiple times. Because I've seen that so many times, uh, different seminars I've gone to, and especially with young dogs, that's just so hard on them to have multiple odors right on top of each other. You have fat. 10 feet away from a, a bone that's 50 years old. You're, you're asking a lot of the dog. So let's go ahead and move on. I want to ask about your process of proof involved, proofing off of non-target odors, whether it be animal remains, whether it just be human contamination. Uh, how do you do that? Do you use boxes and tubes? Are you, are you putting the sources out in the field, the non-target odors out in the field? What's your process to go about that? Um, sometimes it's in the field. I can do lineups. Um, mm -hmm. I do think lineups are deceiving because dogs tend to do quite well once they understand a lineup. And the other interesting thing about proofing is typically when we're proofing, because again, we want the dog to have success, we almost always have the right choice in the line. So is the dog actually ignoring the things we don't want it to take and then just saying oh yeah i'll check them all and then this is the best guess right so you know i think you have to do it always i think you have to do it as okay i'm taking you in this field and there's nothing here and you don't and then maybe i'll take them away from that and just walk them over to odor right or if i'm gonna have a ton of distractions in an area. Maybe I'll show them the odor I want them to get and then bring that through through a runaway into the area with all the distractions so that he learns that those aren't target. 
So again, I can play with all of these methods. Um, and, and you're talking gloves, you're talking containers, you're talking context, right? So there's, there's handler proofing based on what the handler is doing. The dog has to be proofed off of it. There's context proofing where the dog has expectations based on the area they're in. And then there's all of the, and like if it's a jar, it must have something in it. Or if it's a tube, it must have something in it. And then there's just the straight up odor proofing um, where you're just sort of putting all sorts of random things around. So working in it, I find that working in a, an active live area, um, we had a wonderful opportunity a couple of times to work in our teammates neighborhood in the backyards of all their neighbors that are active backyards with dogs and chickens. And um, one of the guys is a taxidermist. He had all kinds of animal carcasses around and freezers and boiling pots and fleshy skulls and things. So working in an active environment, as opposed, very often we end up in these very sterile warehouses mm -hmm. and, and different things. Um, we were fortunate to train at a, a school bus garage so you've got all kinds of kid smells and half-eaten sandwiches and, and things like that. So again, if you build compulsive desire for odor, it will override distractions. So if your dog is heavily distracted, it means that the foundation of making odor valuable isn't strong enough. So it all goes back, for me, everything goes back to making odor valuable. If odor is just sort of like, okay, drift around, show it, get a treat, that's not value. That's okay. <laughs> um, again, when dealing with distractions, if odor is valuable, distractions will not be. Ah, that's, a, that's a great quote. We can put that on the shirt too. So <laughs> there you go. Um, and then it's funny because um, several of our dogs, you know, it happens by accident, but it's kind of funny when you see it. Mine, when I first got him, really not good at giving back a toy. Lots of possession had been built mm -hmm. in him. And so he'd whip it away from me and go back to odor. He goes to odor. He spits it out. He stares at odor and he waits for me to say yes. And he picks it back up. Mm, my dog does the same thing. Yep. Yeah. So the point is he understands the value of this whole sequence too, right? He, he, just the whole thing makes sense. I, I did a, and I, I hate, I'm not trying to say war stories. I'm just, these are little learning points that stuck in my brain where I know like, okay, I did it right. I, my little girl, I was doing a, a demo and of course, luck of the draw, there's a calf in an amniotic sack in the field that I'm doing the demo in. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yippee. Anyway, so we do the demo and I have my little training aids out and I, I reward at that time, I rewarded with a tennis ball for her. And then it had a whole lot of ground cover and I threw the tennis ball and for whatever reason, she couldn't find the tennis ball. And I'm like, okay, just keep looking for it, whatever. And I'm talking and I'm doing my little demo. And the next thing you know, she's over sitting at odor. Because she's like, I can't find the tennis ball, but this is what brings the tennis ball to me. Mm. That's mm -hmm. like one of those brilliant little moments where I'm like, okay, I have made this most amazing connection in her brain. This odor makes tennis balls appear. This is my life. It's awesome, right? So that's what she reverted to through all distraction. She wants the tennis ball. And for whatever reason, it, I couldn't find, and then of course I couldn't find it, so I couldn't give her one. But I thought, 
that was such a little brilliant moment, right? Where she's sitting there saying, this is how I'll get my tennis ball, right? Mm -hmm. So it's about building expectation, building desire, having a reward that they want. Um, and, and when they spit out a toy to indicate something, and then my, my other, I remember, oh, my demos have been funny. Um, he's doing a demo. Of course, I can't get the ball back. He spits the ball, indicates, picks the ball up, goes to the next one, spits the ball, indicates, picks the ball up. Goes, like he just <laughs> went down the line and did his own thing. I'm like, okay, I guess I can just go home. Um, <laughs> but that it does show you that there's a very clear understanding of, of the task and that there's a reward. And if you won't give it to me, I'll give it to myself. So um, I don't know, that was a little right. off track, but it's, um, but it's an, and that actually goes to um, back to our conversation from last time, food versus toy, right? Mm -hmm. Some of that, like when I was talking about the wine on our team, he will not accept a toy. And then he'll play with the toy, grab a branch out of the ground and play with that and parade around with it. And I think that goes to his cultivation. This is what I get for this work. This is my expectation. Don't try to pay me in, you know, euros when I want dollars or whatever, right? So they both have value, but to him, no, this is what I, I so you also, some dogs are very specific in the paycheck that they expect. It's not that they don't like food. It's not, they don't have food drives, not they don't have toy drive, but when I'm doing this task, my brain has clicked it this way and this is my expectation. And if you don't give me that, then our bargain is not valuable anymore. Right. You broke the contract. Right. Because it's an agreement that we, our contract, right? We mm -hmm. have an agreement with the dog. You do this, I do this. And if I'm not doing, if I'm not paying you as you believe you should be paid, then you're going to lower your motivation for it. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. All right. Good deal. So, Let's transition to the all important final train response. And I'm going to frame this question because for this episode, we're just talking about starting your dog. We're not talking about finishing a dog. I think um, I, I, a lot of times we think a, a six month old puppy is going to have a, a completely polished final train response. And that's probably not going to be the case. And I would argue we often add the, the FTR much too early. So, I want to ask the question. We're we're going to get into the to the FTR, but just the the proper framing of this. This is just starting the FTR, not necessarily finishing it. Uh, so when you when you're getting ready to add the FTR to your dogs, what are you looking for out of the dog to say? All right, I think the dog may be ready to do the bark, the sit, the 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 down, the stare, whatever the case may be. What what benchmarks are you looking for out of your dogs? Uh, they have to have, they have to have enough motivation and drive for reward and odor to withstand a certain amount of pressure, whether it's withholding the pressure that comes from withholding reward, or whether it's the taking the indication and then not getting immediate, you know, so if you're telling them to sit or whatever, that it doesn't throw them off and, and whatever. So you do need a level of intensity and a little bit of um, stamina and maturity to be crisp and to not 
fall apart when you're asked to do something that you don't quite understand what you're being, you know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. so again, you would train it away. You train the behaviors. You don't just spring it on them and ask them to do something. They don't know what it is. Right. So you, you train the indication, the behavior itself, whether it's a hold, whether it's a point, whether it's a touch, whether it's a sit, whether it's a down, whether it's a bark, you train it away from the whole process so that when you use the word, the verbal or the physical cue, the dog has an understanding of what that is. Then your job is to connect it to the relevance of odor, where it's not just sort of this discrete thing that's out in the middle of this other task. But sometimes there can be confusion as you're trying to shape a dog, right? He has to want to offer. He has to have things in his toolbox to offer. And then when you can capture when he offers the right one, then you build off of that. But sometimes that takes a little bit of a delay. So if your dog is a little iffy or or not so sure about odor, and then they're like, yeah, I don't think, then you're not going to be able to do that because they're not going to stick with it because they say, yeah, it's not really worth it, right? And I'd rather just, and so people can often cause avoidance. Like I'll, I'll see this sometimes when there's been too much pressure on a dog that's not ready. You'll see that dog go right by odor all the time because it's like they're almost in an avoidance and at first i didn't use to i'm like what the heck is going on and then i realized like oh they know where it is you can tell they know where it is but they're like yeah i'm just not ready to go there yet because all this stuff is going to happen and i just don't want that to happen so the dog there's a certain level of maturity and toughness right and and commitment that i look for before i really expect to get that crisp strong response steady duration type of response. So it sounds like from your experience, a lot of the issues that you've probably seen with, with dogs, spinal train response, it's likely because people may have added that in too early, put pressure on the dog that wasn't ready to accept it. Is that, am I hearing that correctly? Lack of clarity um, in terms of what lack of a lack of making the association for the dog get realizing that the dog understands it's about odor not obedience um and pushing yeah and not recognizing that the dog's in a little bit of stress and avoidance mm -hmm. if you don't recognize it then you're not going to back off and i'm not i'm these are subtle subtle things <laughs> um but pushing too fast pushing too far being impatient, giving the answer and not letting the dog figure it out. It's just, it's this whole plethora of things that, that cause this um, confusion, uh, avoidance, uh, lack of desire, right? It's, it's tough. Okay. So then we, we asked a question earlier about the time frame that you started imprinting your dog, your previous dogs. You said about seven months for a couple of them, then 14 months on one of them. Finger in the air, about what time frame did you actually start adding the FTR to those same dogs? So if you were at seven months to start imprinting, was it nine months? Was it three years where you started the FTR? About where did that fall at, generally speaking? Um, I mean, with the 14-month-old, it was day three. <laughs> I mean, it's, mm -hmm. just, it's, it's not a long process, right? And this is the other reason not to kill yourself over a seven month old puppy that wants to chase butterflies because if you wait three months, he's going to be a rock star and he's going to be a rock star with all of this frustration in between. Um, so uh, 
it's not really even about the time. It's about it. once they're driving for odor, then I just make the odor inaccessible and I start capturing behaviors and shape it in almost immediately. Okay, cool, cool. So I, I don't have a specific timeline. It, it goes more to the, the drive of the dog and, and their commitment and their clarity. And, and with clarity comes confidence, right? So if your dog is showing ambiguity, it's because they're not quite clear and then that'll cause avoidance as well. So with clarity comes confidence and with confidence comes power. And so it's all about power on odor for me. Mm -hmm. But I I think what you mentioned earlier, I do want to repeat. Let's say if I want my dog to bark at odor, the mistake I've seen a few times is people say, all right, well, go ahead and put the dog on odor and tell it to bark. And the dog doesn't even know how to bark yet. So you mentioned earlier. That's the point. You separate it. Yeah, Yeah, you separate that. Get a solid, rock solid bark outside of the search context. And once that is rock solid, dependable, then you can add it into the context. did Did I repeat that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Component based training. You don't ask for the whole symphony when you haven't, you know, you're, you're going to play scales and you're going to do exercises. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, you certainly if you're going to start asking the dog for a behavior, the dog has to understand what that behavior is and, right. and how to give it. And then when I'm doing a bark, if I have a dog that knows how to bark, then I'm go- I, I, there's another little technique that I use um, because I like a focused bark a bark at odor, not just standing and barking. Because when you get a big pool and a big source, the dog's in the pool and they're just barking into space. And it's like, I don't know where anything is, right? So it's fine if it's a full body, but if you're doing something more, you know, less obvious, it's kind of nice if the dog has a focused bark at the direction. Mm-hmm. So I'll actually stalk the dog when they're at it, you know, and I'll kind of, and if they're kind of bouncing away from it, I'll stalk the dog. Like I'm coming in, I'm going to take it from you. And they're like, no, you're not. And then they'll dive on it and then they'll bark. And I'm like, yes. And then, and they're like, oh, so you kind of can almost like, Ooh, I'm coming, man. And they're like, no, you can't have it. So you have that possession. Mm -hmm. It's really fun to watch them. And then they really target right in on it. And they're like, no, it's mine. So you kind of induce again, inducing behaviors that you can then capture. Okay. Telling inducing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. So this has been wonderful. There, we've covered a lot of information. Hopefully the listeners have appreciated it all. I know I have. I've learned several things through these discussions. But as is always the case on this this uh, podcast, we want to give you the opportunity, Sonia, to talk about some searches that you've been on. Uh, this is going to be hard for you. It's probably going to be unfair. I, I know a friend of mine is going to tell me I probably should just do a separate episode with you just to, <laughs> to talk about some oh, of the searches gosh. you've been on. But if you have a few that you want to talk about that, that that really stick out in your mind from your, I think, 27-year career in search and rescue, uh, please feel free. Um, I will start by saying that when you're in this business, depending upon where you live, finds are few and far between, mm-hmm. um, especially the wilderness ones where you're given a mountain and they might be on the other side of the mountain. So, um, and, you know, the ones there have been several where the dogs have found where people and other dogs had already been. So those are, are, you know, important. Um, I think it's important to not get hung up on 
how public the search is or how famous the missing person is or the incident is. Every one of these, I don't care who you find or where you find them, it's really important work. So I think it's, I think, you know, some people get all these accolades and, oh, I did this, right? I mean, I say, you know, mine's like, oh, I went to the Pentagon. Oh, yippee for me. Um, it's no more, I mean, yes, it's important and it was very impactful and it was a remarkable thing to be part of, but everybody that's been found is important. It doesn't matter if it made national news, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's just the guy around the hill, right? So some that I'm more proud of um, are when I know that if it had been my first dog, I would have missed because the odor was presenting and I saw the change of behavior and it, we couldn't nail it down. And I brought an entire team of people back into the desert at six in the morning. And we were successful in finding, you know, two victims that had been murdered and buried. Um, so that was, that's kind of a huge one. And it was kind of neat to know that, wow, again, I can't train for that, really. All I can do is expose my dog to odor and make him want it and make him like it. And because of that, I saw all kinds of change of behavior and it was really far. And at that time I had been told, oh, it's gonna be subtle. It wasn't subtle. Um, when there's odor and you've got a dog that really wants it, their change of behavior is not subtle and it travels way more than you'd ever guess, or at least in the environments that I've been. So, and and then there was another one where I, I most often don't interact with the family. I find that a little bit difficult. And, and unfortunately, one of the family members had said, you know, we just don't know, but we need to know because this is a person who had faked their own suicide before and my dog lit up and went flying and I'm like oh my god that exact behavior I had never seen in him but I had seen it two dogs previous my my first dog I had seen that in and again I dragged people up three days later and he was a mile from where my dog lit up we ultimately found him and that was one that winter was coming snow had already fallen he was not going to be recovered so, you know, those are some good ones where the dog really made the difference. I didn't just trip on him, you know. Dog showed me strong change of behavior. Deciphering where that comes from is always a big challenge. But even to say, look, I've, I've got something here and we need to follow up and really look at the terrain and look at the airflow and try to figure out where this is coming from and logical. So then putting that whole craft together is where our part as a handler comes in. The dog's got to do what they've got to do, but we as a handler um, have to decipher things. Okay, so those great. are some good ones. Yeah, those those are great. Really appreciate it. Um, so the last question, if people want to contact you um, for either your, your nose work classes or maybe for a search and rescue seminar, is there somewhere that they can contact you at? Um, yeah, my website is soniasdogtraining.com because I have no imagination. Um, and it's Sonia <laughs> with a J. Uh, Sonia with a J. So, yeah, that's probably the best way to get me because um, my email is complicated. So that has it on there. And, um, yeah, so that's fine. All right. Very and good. And then also I'll put in a plug for this Smart Dog Conference thing. Um, so I don't know if people have heard of HITS. 
which is a police canine conference that's been put on for several years. And now they're adding sort of a civilian and sport dog portion that they're calling Smart Dog Conference. So I'll be lecturing there along with a lot of other great instructors. And it's focusing on civilians with nose work and general detection and civilian SAR and SAR, you know, basically the civilian detection side of the house. So that's in August in Scottsdale and that's being advertised around. It's on Facebook and things. So it's, it's nice of them to include us and nice of them to try to broaden the exposure for some of these seminars to outside of law enforcement and military. Yeah, good deal. Yeah, Sonia and I were speaking before we started recording and I mentioned to her that I actually plan to attend the Smart Dog Conference as well. So if any listeners want to tell me exactly how much you hate this podcast, then uh, you can find me there because <laughs> I'll be there with a mask on. I'm just kidding. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll put that information uh, again on the Hunt Find Alert Facebook page as well as within the, the podcast show notes. So Sonia, thank you so much for your time. This has really been wonderful, greatly appreciated. And there's no doubt in my mind that the information that you convey over the last two episodes are definitely going to help handlers out there to bring people home, which is really what this is all about. So again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you all for joining Hunt Find Alert. We hope that you join us next time and have a great day.